I was thinking during that, that last song that we were singing, there was the picture in the background that Luann puts together to put the lyrics up on the screen. There's that little boy just sitting outside, and he's holding a Bible, and he, he's got his hand on it, and his head's turned back like he's just read the best knock-knock joke in the whole wide world. And um, I just want to be like that little boy. I want to be like that little boy and open my Bible up and not get so stuck in all of the different conversations and distractions that we've had and just look at the promises of God and tilt my head back in pure delight. I wish I could be like that little boy. Well, last week we concluded our series through the book of Revelation. Naturally, that means this morning we'll be in the book of Genesis. Last Sunday evening, we introduced briefly uh, this sermon series because it is different than what I normally do. We aren't necessarily moving through a particular text uh, verse by verse, but rather we're looking at what is a theme. And one of the difficulties that we have when we come to the book like Genesis is that we lose sight so very quickly of what this actually is and, and what it was intended for. And without some sort of comprehension of the original context, we really lose the meaning of the book. And it's not just a story tale. It's not just a fairy tale. And so one of the things that we find when we're reading through Genesis is people lie a whole lot. Matter of fact, lying is used in Genesis to develop the overall theme that God is, first of all, faithful to his promises, and second of all, that he is the only blessing for anyone in this world. I don't want to get too bogged down, but I will let you know that I've, I've printed off a, a short little page and a half explanation of how lying is used throughout this book. I want to come back to what we introduced last Sunday evening. And that was the very first lie ever recorded. The lie of Satan whenever he deceived Eve in the garden. Last week we introduced and discussed that essentially Satan told four lies to tempt Eve. He made her question, first, is God good? Is God truthful? Is God righteous? And finally, is God gracious? This morning, we begin a three-part series exploring what have been called the sister lies in Genesis. That is, the three instances where a patriarch lies about his relationship with his wife. Abraham calls Sarah his wife, and then Isaac also calls Rebekah his wife. I want to look at these studies or each of these instances, so that we can begin to develop an understanding of what deceit does in the life of a believer, particularly in the life of a believer. And in order to do that, I'll be focusing my attention to Genesis chapter 12, but I want to encourage you, don't, don't let me do all of the work for you. You're really going to miss out on, on being that little child with his hand on his Bible and his head turned back and smiling up towards God if you let me do all of the work for you. I want to encourage you this week and in the weeks to come to look at Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 20, 
in Genesis chapter 26, where each of these sister lies are found. What we find is that in each of these, a parallel motif is used to develop how deceit undermines the promise and blessing of God. First, we find that in each of these sister lies, they are preceded with a remarkable promise from the Lord coming in a direct way. Second, that an element of concern is introduced, producing fear in the characters, namely Abraham and Isaac, that spurs their deceit. And finally, we find that despite their human failings, God remains faithful to His promises while not necessarily alleviating the natural consequences that come from rebellion in our morality. Well then, if you're keeping up this morning, I'll give you really fast our notes. We have four lies that Satan told. Is God good? Is God truthful? Is God righteous? And is God gracious? This morning, we will be looking at the first motif that I introduced, and that is the promise that comes from God. What I want to do then is to use those four lies to look at the promise from God and consider how they answer those questions. In the promise that God has given to Abraham, this morning we'll be looking in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. In the promise that God gave to Abraham, how does it prove that God is good? that God is truthful, that God is righteous, and that God is gracious. If you're taking notes that morning, this morning, there you have our sermon outline. Let us begin then by looking at the promises of God in our text. But before we do that, let us pray that we might have understanding from the Spirit. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and the ability that we have to delight in it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not only to read your word, but to understand it in our heart and to apply it as we seek to walk with you. Thank you for your promises, God, for being here now. Bless us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With your Bibles open, I'll read out loud and ask that you read along with me. The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sari, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, 
And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Well, we begin then by considering, first of all, what is this text? You might want to pray for me this morning. Uh, Michelle and I actually joked, I think this sermon will be, this is the worst thing a pastor can ever say. This will be a short sermon. But you might want to pray for me because this is an infamous text. In fact, this text is so important and integral into the message of the entire gospel story unraveling into the New Testament. This is the original covenant established with, by God with His chosen people, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. So I'm going to try not to get bogged down in what is invariably one of the most important texts in all of Scripture. Let us consider, how does God prove himself to be good in his covenant with Abraham? The first six words of our text reveal the goodness of God. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram. The Lord said to Abram. The initiative in this passage is that God comes and speaks to Abram. Out of all the peoples of the earth, out of everything established in the, uh, the history of Genesis, God speaks to Abram. You might think that's insignificant, but the reality is Christianity is different than every world religion in, I would say, maybe two, but really in, in one distinct way. How is our faith different than the rest of the different versions of religion in this world? Man did not sit down and decide he would go and find out who this God character is. We did not look around at the marvels that were before us and say, there must be a God, let me find out what I can know about Him, and through rationality discovered the Creator of the universe. Every world religion approaches faith in this way. The Bible tells us that God is the one who brought initiative. As a matter of fact, the initiative of salvation always begins with God. God is always the one that starts the process. He's always the one that softens the heart. He is the one that compels the soul. He is the one that transforms the mind. The initiative of salvation always begins with God. This is Kind of cutting to the quick of the issue, but Abram is going to become the father of faith. He is recorded and mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, as a pillar of faith for the people of the New Testament to look to. He fathers the nation of Israel and is their reason for unity and deliverance when we find them in Exodus, leaving Egypt. This point here, God speaking to Abram, is the first unfolding of the plan of salvation. It is rooted in what God had previously said immediately after the fall in Genesis 3.15 that from Eve would come a seed that would crush the serpent's heel. As we read through Genesis, we, there's this tension, there's this promise from Genesis 3.15, and we wonder, could Cain or could Abel be this promised seed? Cain kills Abel wasn't them. 
We see this tension carrying forward. Could it be uh, Melchizedek? Could it be uh, all the way up? Who is the seed coming from Eve that will crush the serpent's head? Abram is the father of that seed. He's the beginning of this promise. We have a temptation, loved ones, to consider our salvation as originating in a decision that we made. That is a falsehood. It's not true. This isn't very precise, but I still consider it accurate. You can want to be saved until you are blue in the face, and if God does not start the process of salvation in you, you will never be saved. Now, I say it's not very precise because obviously that statement is a hypothetical statement. I believe that anyone that wants to be saved, God has started that process of salvation in them, so it doesn't necessarily apply because that could never happen in real life. But what we can take away from it, perhaps it's it's safer just to look at a proof text. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but is a free gift of God. The application of this then is simple. When we look that grace always precedes faith, the application is simple. Christians today do not need to make salvation something that is attractive to allure people to wanting it. Salvation is attractive all by itself to anyone who has had their heart opened to the truth of the gospel by God And at the same time, it is unattractive to anyone whose heart has been hardened to the truth of the gospel. Anyone who has not been called of God will view faith as something that is a bunch of rules, a bunch of regulations, a bunch of principles, as a bunch of misery. If we've been saved, we know that's not the case because we find joy and pleasure in the promises of God. Loved ones, God is good. God is good because He said to Abram, He revealed Himself to those who are called. We should consider our own salvation. Whether or not we were saved because of the social norms of the time that we grew up in, because we saw something that was attractive, or was our heart truly burdened, broken? Was it illuminated to the darkness of our depravity and our need of a Savior, were we impressed by the Holy Spirit for our need of a Savior? God is good in His covenant to Abram. Second, God is truthful in His covenant to Abram. The next thing that He says in verse 1 is, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. He speaks to Abram, and the first thing that he says is, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, just think about it. This is a command that carries with it a... It's a scary command. Leave everything that makes you comfortable. Abandon all of your security. Do what I tell you. The first part of God's command here, it is scary. 
We, we should be asking, I think, when we look at this, here's God speaking to this man. He tells him to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house. Who is this man, Abram, that God should speak to him, that he should be singled out, that he should be the one identified here as the father of faith that God would use to bring all of these things into perspective? Well, if you look back to Genesis chapter 11, just one chapter before where we began reading this morning, you will find another infamous story in the book of Genesis the Tower of Babel. I don't want to get bogged down here. I very easily could. But the Tower of Babel is an ancient polemic addressing Babylonian creation narratives. It was given to the people of Israel with the explicit purpose of contradicting and refuting what was a common way of thinking in their day. I don't have time to get into all of the details, but if you're interested, I'll give you some place to start. The Babylonian creation narrative called the Enuma Elish is an ancient creation narrative that was prominent in the ancient world. The Tower of Babel contradicts and even in some places seems to make fun of this story of creation. See, the Babylonians had what were called ziggurats or those are pyramids, four-sided pyramids that were built up. And the reason the Babylonians built these ziggurats was so that the gods could come down and live among the people. The Tower of Babel, the story found in Genesis chapter 11, makes it clear that the people, even if they were able to build themselves up all the way to the stars and even build themselves higher and higher, would be no closer to God than when they first began. There's a pun Hopefully we're all familiar with that in the story. The word in ancient Babylonian, Babel, meant and was used as a source of pride and authority among the people, their superiority. In Hebrew, in our English transliterated word Babel, what does it mean? It's a, it's a word that means confusion, to babble like a child. The story of the Tower of Babel tells of man's prideful and rebellious state. Out of this story, we are introduced to the generations of Terah, Abraham's father. This is where Abraham must leave from. A family that practiced moon worship. A family that was caught up in multiple forms of an idolatrous background. God is truthful, loved ones. When he called Abram, he called him to leave. And when he calls people today, he still does the same thing. There is no room in religion. There is no room in the Christian faith to live for the world and at the same time somehow live for God. Certainly we live in the world, but we only live for God. His purposes and his purposes alone. We must be willing to even part with our families. We must be willing to abandon what has made us comfortable. As a matter of fact, we find in the Gospels that those things that make us comfortable can be a hindrance to pursuing God and growing in the faith. They can be things that hold us back because they prevent us from being completely reliant upon God. God is truthful. He's truthful in His covenant to Abram and giving him instructions that would bring about the very blessings he is trying to he has promised to him. Second, a third, God is righteous in his covenant to Abram. 
In securing God's purposes in verse 3, God simply states, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In verse 6, we're told that the land of promise was possessed by the Canaanites, descendants of Noah's son Ham, who was cursed after the flood. This promised land that was going to be given to Abram, why did he not just go to the land of Canaan and, and accept it? With God gave it to him. Why didn't he just go in and say, God has given me this land, this is now the promised land? Why did it have to wait from this point in Genesis 12 all the way up to Exodus? Very simple. When we consider the, the context of the Canaanites' curse, Remember at the very beginning, when the flood came, Ham was the son of Noah that went in and saw his father's nakedness. Awaking, Noah said, cursed is Canaan. Do you think it was very fair that Noah cursed the descendant of someone that didn't even trespass against him? The implication here wasn't that the curse was going to Canaan, but rather it was that sinfulness is passed from one generation to the other. That Ham and his trespass against his father would be passed on to the Canaanites, who would become a sexually immoral people, a sexually despised people. And the reason for their cursing was not because they were to inherit the punishment of their father, but rather because they would, by their own will, by their own volition, by their own choice, walk in the same sinfulness as their father. The Canaanites would lead to a peak of corruption, but that peak of corruption had not yet come in the day that Abram left his father's household and went to the land of Canaan. God is righteous in that he would not give this land to the Israelites until the time of the Canaanites' corruption had reached its peak. He waited until the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. That he could establish his covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai with the people. That he could bring them back to the promised land. And that he could righteously have them conquer the Canaanites to begin with. I said at the very beginning, we see in verse 3, God simply states that he will bless those who bless Abram and he will curse those who curse him. This is an equal measure of righteousness. But consider the greater blessing here that Abram, through being blessed by God, is going to become a blessing to the whole world. This really brings us to our final point God is gracious in his covenant to Abram. There are three gracious promises that we find. First, that God in verse 1 says that he's taking Abram to a land that he will show him. Again, in verse 7, he says, To your offspring I will give this land. He promises to give him this possession. Second, he says, I will make you a great nation in verse 2. Proverbs 16, 9 tells us that man may walk, but God is the one who directs his paths or establishes his steps. This promise is very simple. God is the one who makes people great. He is the one who makes them wise. He's the one that establishes all things. 
and making Abram the nation of Israel and blessing this family and everything that would come from it. Ultimately, his plan is not for the blessing of one man or one people or one nation, but for the entire world. What makes Genesis 12 so amazing, so remarkable, so important to the narrative of the Bible is we see all the way at the beginning of the nation of Israel that God is a missionary God. He is a God on mission for His people. God is gracious beyond just Abraham. I think so often we look at these stories and we consider what it means to take hold of the promises of God. We make our business that we would be blessed. We go to concerts and conferences and hear sermons and read our Bible and we say, bless me, God, bless me, God, bless me, God. When is the last time that we have considered that being blessed, we are to be a blessing to others? When is the last time that we considered that our selflessness is to be made manifest in the fact that God's blessing on His people is there for the blessing of the whole world because He is a missionary God? God promises him the possession of the land. He promises to make him a great nation. I said there were three. The third one is found in verse 2. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The reason for God's blessing upon us is that we might walk with him. I said this would be a short sermon this morning. There's really only four questions for us to ask. Is God good? Is God truthful? Is God righteous? Is God gracious? God is good. I can't remember that movie where, that made this popular, the one with the dancing. God is good, and all the time, God is certainly good. He is good beyond comprehension. He is good beyond what we could possibly fathom. He defines goodness in His very being because by His very nature, He is nothing but good. Everything good in our world comes from God. He is the Creator. He has established goodness among us. Is God truthful? Does He tell us the truth? It's impossible for Him to lie. God is so truthful that He defines truth. As the author of everything, every scientific discovery that we might want to lay our laurels upon, every scientific insight, every form of brilliance that man might discover is contained by the sovereignty of God and that He is the one that preserves every law of nature. Is God truthful? He cannot lie. We can trust Him. Is God righteous? Is He just? There are those that would like to say that an all-good and all-trustworthy God could not possibly punish people for being wicked. Loved ones, if we believe that God is truthful, then we must believe what He has told us the truth to be, that every person born since the fall of man, like Canaan, has inherited the sinfulness of their fathers and has been born into a state of depravity. Loved ones, each and every person on this world, every person that has ever walked in this world will be judged according to the works of their life. We will be judged by the merits that we deserve, by a good and truthful God that cannot lie. 
And when he condemns every person to a state of eternal punishment because of our trespasses against him, it will be deserved and just. He is a righteous God. In that, while wanting a relationship with his creation, he did not simply excuse the misgivings of a fallen humanity. Rather, through the Son, he paid the price of man's depravity. He died on a cross. He was buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven in bodily form. And today is still there, waiting the day that the clouds might be rolled back and that he might return. And upon his return, such judgment on our works will certainly be executed and performed. And the only hope that any person has is that at that time, we will say, Lord, I am in Christ and his righteousness is on me. And because of Christ's righteousness, Lord, because you have paid the price of my sin for me, even though there was no sin in you because of Christ's righteousness, I expect glory forever. He is a righteous God. Is God gracious? Is He withholding things from us? Is He preventing us from enjoying blessing? Is He, uh, uh, the, the way the Babylonians thought of God, they, they had the, Marduk was their God, and if you, if you know anything about that, well, I, I'll try not to jump down this rabbit hole because I could get lost, but He was a wicked God. He created humans so that he could have slaves to play with. He wasn't gracious. He wasn't good. He wasn't truthful. He was a slave master. What we find in Genesis is that God is a gracious God who tells Adam and Eve to eat freely of anything in the garden. He is a gracious God that comes to Abram and establishes this covenant with him that he might be a great nation. That through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. He is a gracious God. His goodness emanates from his goodness. His grace is available to us all. Is God good? Yes. Is God truthful? Yes. Is He righteous? Yes. Is God gracious? Yes. And He has given us this promise all the way at the beginning of Genesis 12 so that it can play out. Now let me tell you what we're going to look at next week. Immediately following this incredible promise from God, the obedience of Abram to go as he had been commanded, look at verse 9. Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sari, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Let me ask you a question. Is it okay to lie? Is it ever okay to lie? Abraham's motivation is that he would save his own tail, that he wouldn't be put to death. I mean, after all, isn't it important that Abraham lives? He's the father of faith. God's given him these promises. 
Is it okay to lie? I wonder why he did it. I wonder why I do it. I wonder why we do it. We'll look at that next week as we consider how deceit is used in the book of Genesis. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, the way that it guides us and instructs us. Father, thank you for being good, for being truthful, for being righteous and just, for being gracious to us, Lord. You have blessed us more than we could possibly understand. And I think our human condition prevents us from seeing that. Help me to embrace your graciousness towards me, Lord, and to thank you for it. Help me to trust your truth and to believe in your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.